Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 58. Today, we will conclude the interview with Charles Radcliffe. Until recently, he was head of AI at Fidelity International in the UK, and then founded Ethics Grade, which inhabits a space now known by the initials ESG, Environmental, Social and Governance. And Ethics Grade scores companies on their AI governance. Just as an example, they gave Amgen an A and LinkedIn a D. Last time, we started talking about the ethics of AI, including bias, the challenges that companies exploring AI face in that and how they can handle ethics better. We're going to continue with that and then get into the topic of Charles's TEDx talk on the future of automation called Three Steps to Surviving the Robot Revolution. Here we go. It does seem that ethics now in organizations is coming to the fore far more than in earlier years. 30 years ago, ethics was not a conversation in enterprises. It was referred to maybe as an honor code or standard, but there was not the amount of ethics training that now takes place. And so it's it's something that's developing. In this industry, that's true. Yes, fair enough. I don't mean to cut you off there, but I think what's important, I come from the financial services industry, which has been through its, <laughs> it's been through its challenges. And so for me, I look at my experience in banking where the beginning of my career, I worked for a Canadian bank and a South African bank, and I sort of saw a pre-crisis culture. And then I worked for a large German bank, which had been badly affected by the financial crisis and still is in many ways. And I got to experience an organization that was changing to being a post-crisis culture organization. That taught me a lot. And one of the things it taught me was this idea that in financial services, you have really a central challenge around knowing who your customer is, knowing who the counterparty is. Is this person somebody we are allowed to do business with, we should do business with, and that our own risk appetite for who we want to do business with is satisfied? Do we know you are who you say you are? And also, even if we do know who you say you are, are we confident that the providence of your fund is acceptable and hasn't come from dubious means? Essentially, has your money been laundered? Those are sort of the two questions. And in the financial crisis, you know, we really toughened up on those two things. But I'm probably going to upset a lot of people with this comment, but before the crisis, the way that compliance departments were seen was the people that got in the way of the rest of us making money. And it was a sort of them and us culture. Post-crisis, the culture, not universally yet, but we're getting there. The culture is very much that there is still a compliance department, a group of people who focus on solving those challenges, but it's everyone's problem. Everyone is a compliance officer in their own respective way. And so I think this is a, this is a business ethics problem. It's one that you know, wasn't invented in the financial crisis. It existed many years before. But I think the financial services industry really understood that suddenly in that period, mm. 2008 to 2010. And if you look at other instances, particularly pharmaceutical industry, this is, this is one that and I know very little about. But one of the things that I've learned recently as we've been researching it is that they've also had business ethics challenges going back you know, decades, but also medical ethics challenges. And I think in terms of when they hit digital ethics as a topic, 
what we're seeing is organizations, they look at the muscle they've already built. How have we responded to medical ethics? How have we responded to business ethics? And they're now starting to say, how many of those structures, those processes, those people can we now apply at these new questions of digital ethics? And how fit for purpose are they? And I'm not saying they're perfect, perfect, but I would argue they're a pretty good fit. You make a very good point here that in the healthcare and legal and financial sectors, ethics has gone back a lot further because of the consequences of a mistake. There were enormous lawsuits and and culpability. Now, I think we're seeing ethics raised to the fore in a lot more industries because the consequences of making an unethical decision is that it could be plastered all over Twitter and your stock could tank in seconds. And one more thing on that, Peter. The other thing those industries all have in common so lawyers, accountants, doctors, surgeons, bankers, is that those all require a level of kind of professional expertise to be able to do their job. And the rest of us are kind of consumers of that professional expertise. It's beyond most of our abilities to be a doctor or a lawyer or a banker. And even if we were, we are very unlikely to transcend into those other groups. So, you know, a lawyer isn't likely to make a very good surgeon, etc., And so in a sort of legal sense, what we have created is this sort of special category of person who owes the rest of us what we call a high duty of care. And with my burden to you or my neighbor as an ordinary citizen is the burden I owe to every human being. But the burden that a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor, et cetera, owes to the rest of us is what we call a fiduciary duty. And it really recognizes that special character of control that they have. And for me, I think the most mystifying gap that we have in our relationship to the technology industry is that we don't hold technologists to the same standard yet. And I think that is inevitably going to change in the next generation, because the level of complexity that technology requires an understanding of, the discipline, the expertise is beyond most people, and therefore they are only done to by technology. And I think that's the kind of sort of special sort of off the hook situation that technologists have right now is that they don't owe a fiduciary duty to the rest of us. And so when they screw things up, they can get away with it and still make a lot of money at the same time. So should we have certification for data engineers, a bar exam for CIOs? Being a little facetious, but that's the direction you're heading. Yeah, I think there's two things. I think one is I think the penalties in law can be a little bit stronger. Again, borrowing from my own industry in financial services, what we've seen in the last few years is something called a senior manager regime, which is if you're a senior person in a financial services organization, even if you're not aware that there's malpractice happening below the scenes, the fact that you are in that senior position means that you personally can suffer a financial penalty and you can go to jail. And you know, guess what? That's really sharp in the minds of a lot of senior bankers to make sure that they don't take risks, make sure that they really make sure that the practice is, is, is under control in their organizations, because that's a real serious threat, losing one's assets that one's spent a career building up. I think what's interesting about the financial regulators is that the kind of the detail is kind of left to the organization and the professional bodies to figure out the penalty is there. And I think we could borrow some things here from that industry. There are people, however, who are definitely proposing certification schemes. And I think the thing I find most interesting is audit. I've been quite closely involved with a crowdsourced audits platform called For Humanity based out of New York. It's a not-for-profit. And what's most interesting about this scheme is that it's brought together a few hundred experts on different respective parts of the AI community to start to put together a sort of a corpus of best practice. It's not perfect. It's not complete. 
but it's the best thing we've got right now. And certification, standards, professional qualifications are certainly one of the things that they're looking at. Whether they'll be successful, whether they will become the norm remains to be seen. But I think there's a lot of brain power thinking about this right now. And before we leave this topic, I want to offer some counterpoint in that as regulated as those sectors are, they've accomplished some spectacular breaches of their responsibility to the extent that preventable medical mistakes are the third leading cause of death in the United States. And Barclays manipulated LIBOR, which sounded to me like changing the value of pi, but they got away with it for a while. And on and on, numerous kinds of things and a whole raft of them during the financial crisis. So maybe there's a kind of a relationship there that the more we clamp down on them, the more they feel that it's okay for them to get away with anything that they can, at least some of them. But we have other fish to fry here. wanted to talk about how earlier you were talking about ethics and a situation where you felt, oh, this is crossing the line. Mm. And for individuals, that's one of the markers. Like, do you feel like you're crossing a line? Then you need to examine it. Now, I wonder whether in the same way that we can have data that as much as we've scrubbed it and believe in its authenticity and validity can still harbor bias, we can have ethical violations without realizing them. Seems vacuously true, but then what does an organization do if it wants to ensure that that doesn't happen? I think an organization thinking that it's never going to make a mistake is deluding itself. I think that's the first thing. So I think we should proceed with the assumption that mistakes will happen. I think it's really a question of how an organization addresses those things. What I talk a lot about with organizations that we research and uncover in our ratings is the need to connect up principles of what does an organization believe in with protocols. So what does an organization do day to day? And because I like symmetry, I've given it a P, although a lot of people hate this this word, pronouncements, essentially specific guidance for certain things. And I think this is the key challenge that engineers face on the coalface, but also customers have, clients have, when they're looking at an organization and trying to assess, do I trust this company or not? Do I trust this product or not? And so what happens right now is the principles are quite often publicly facing. So in the last 12 months, we've seen lots of organizations publish their principles for ethical AI or technology in general. And you know what they've done is they've chosen six fairly unoffensive words. <laughs> they've agreed. They've played a word game. They've got some post-it notes and whiteboards if they've had the fortune to get together in a physical room. And it's a bit of a much of a muchness. We agree on equality, justice, fairness, et cetera, et cetera. This is kind of marketing gibberish in many respects. What you need to see beyond that, I can't judge whether HSBC is a good bank to do business with and I can trust them with my data just because they tell me that they believe in equality or fairness or whatever is in their documents. And they're not alone. There's many organizations who've done this. What I need to see beyond that is what are the governance protocols that they have? How are they going to be consistent? How are they not going to be whimsical, capricious? in their execution against those ideas. That's really the most important thing. But I'm not going to sit and read a tome of governance as a consumer. And you know, none of us read privacy policies or terms and conditions. But I think what you can look for are those evidence and pronouncements. So specific examples of where an organization says, this crosses our line. This is something we would not do. In this particular instance, this is something which we don't feel comfortable about. But if the facts were different in this way, it would be okay. 
And I think what we see is that organizations are making those pronouncements, but they're making them with sort of two critical weaknesses. Firstly, they feel that they can only reach those conclusions from behind closed doors. And secondly, sometimes they are not communicating even those decisions externally. And I think they're both challenges because obviously if they're not communicating the decisions, then I know that you've got a committee that looks at ethics, but I don't know what they've decided. The existence of a committee, when I don't know who's on it, how it works or what's decided, isn't really going to make me trust you, particularly as an organization. And I think the important thing is to have these conversations in the open, to have these conversations certainly in full visibility of your stakeholders. And your stakeholders, you may just say, well, my stakeholders are my employees, my stakeholders are my people. That to me would be an ethical choice you've made, but one, it may have some commercial justification to it. And my parallel, and I like historical parallels, my parallel is the last time that we experienced this kind of situation where organizations were very consciously aware that their products had ethical impact, had consequences, and they met behind closed doors to consider those implications at the same time as marketing to the rest of us the virtues of their products. The last time that happened was the tobacco industry in the 1950s. And when you look at some of the advertisements from those days where you've got doctors and dentists promoting Philip Morris products, it's kind of crazy to look at from a sort of 2020s perspective. But I don't think it's that different to what we're seeing from the technology industry today. And that cover-up was going on well into the 80s with the smoke screen, pun intended, of uh, secondhand smoke arguments. I want to pivot here in our remaining time to the topic of the TEDx talk that I saw you give, which was about the future of jobs. And you devoted some considerable passion there to exploring the options that we might have and the pros and cons of different ways of reinventing our economy in the face of wide-scale automation. And can you tell us about how important that is to you and why you're tackling that mammoth topic? Yeah, (laughs) we could have spent the whole conversation on this one. Why is this important to me? So let me tell you why. In the financial crisis, during the financial crisis, I lost my job in a bank. And, you know, I thought that I would be out of work for a few months. So I kind of just, you know, kicked back and enjoyed myself. I ran out of money. (laughs) It was a pretty, pretty shitty time in many respects. I was sort of rock bottom. And, you know, then I got a break and I ended up joining a small data analytics company and I ended up taking over that company and I led a very charmed few years. So for me, I had a few really, really tough months where I couldn't see the economy getting any better. I couldn't see any prospects of getting any work. I was flat broke and I was really miserable. And then life turned around. I got back on the game and and we sold that business and I made my first real capital wealth. And, you know, until that point, I'd always had this assumption that when you make capital, the smart thing to do is to put that capital to work so that you can derive an income from the capital, not from your own work. And then you choose whether you want to work or not. Work becomes an option for you. And so I did, you know, what many people have done once they've reached that point is I bought property. And so I was in that fortunate position where I had tenants paying me an income. And then I had that sort of optionality as to whether I chose to work. And I then very quickly, and I assumed I was going to spend six months of my life doing all the things that I didn't have time for when I was running my data analytics company. I very quickly got unhappy and miserable. And I 
thought back to the last time I'd experienced that feeling, and that was in a financial crisis. And it really puzzled me because I thought the reason I was unhappy in 2009 was because I was broke. And here I was in 2015, you know, not broke. In fact, the opposite. And yet I had the same feelings. And I really did a lot of soul searching as to why this was and what could it be. And I realized it was I lacked purpose. What I lacked in 2009, I was flat broke, but I also had no purpose in my life at that point. And what I found in 2015 is exactly the same condition. I really lacked purpose. And that's when the penny dropped that, you know, all of the work I was doing in the data analytics world, as I was getting more and more immersed into robotics and AI, I realized that, you know, the, the entire goal, at least as I see it, and maybe people disagree with this, but the entire goal of our industry is to automate the things that we need to do to survive and flourish as a species so that we don't have to work, so that we don't have to send people down mines and get people to do those tasks that none of us really want to do, and so that we can focus on those things that are purposeful. And I guess now I'm a father. For me, the purposeful things in my life are my children, the time in the last 12 months I spent in my local community helping neighbors or just doing simple things. Those things are the things that give me well-being and a sense of, they don't give me an income. They don't help build me capital wealth. As I thought about these issues more and more deeply, I realized that we have a kind of a break point perhaps as we continue down this road. And I guess what I see is there's a lot of technological unemployment deniers and those people tend to be people in high positions in the big tech companies like you know, Eric Schmidt. And it really concerns me that there's a certain naivety around, and I, I, forgive me, because I, I have no idea whether you, which side of the fence you sit on here, Peter, but I, I get a sense you, you might be closer to my view than Eric Schmidt's. The concern I have is that they may well be right. The other side of this argument is a much better side of the argument to be on, because it's the side you want to be on. The future is going, to be, it's going to be great. It's going to be just like today, but better. Nothing to worry about. There'll still be jobs. We'll invent new jobs. It'll all be great. And if that's right, then it's fantastic. And I'm wrong. And I've wasted a huge amount of time on this subject. And I'm, I'm happy with that because we've avoided a bad outcome. But what I think is irresponsible is that maybe that isn't the outcome that we get. And maybe that is not a continuous progression to that utopian outcome. Maybe we go through a period where work is very unequally distributed. And again, my historical reference here is when Karl Marx was writing in 1840s London in Kentish Town. That was a pretty shitty place to live. It was a slum. And he was writing his work because he really could not see any way of the extreme poverty of over half of Londoners being resolved. I mean, he would be, I think, amazed to see London today. He'd be amazed to see Kentish Town today, for sure. And so what did Karl Marx lead to? He led to ideas which have created unimaginable suffering for a huge number of people in the last century. And so I guess what I worry about is, I don't worry about mass unemployment. I mean, that, that is something that's possible. What I worry about is small-scale unemployment, but intergenerational at the consequence of automation. And so I worry about when I see things like the yellow vest movements, when I, well, earlier when I see the Zuccotti Park Occupy movements, you know, I saw highly motivated people try to bring down the system. When I see the yellow vest movement in Paris, I see the same. I experienced the riots in London, which were brief, but a few quite terrifying weeks around 2011. What I worry about is civil unrest. And I worry that people who are today find a lot of purpose in their work, realizing that 
machines can automate that, there's really nothing that they have an opportunity to retrain or reskill towards that because they're going to be in a job market looking for the same jobs with a lot of other people. And their disenfranchisement takes them, maybe not out to the streets with pitchforks, but gets them to see technology itself and the technology industry as the enemy and start to rebel. And so I guess really what I try to aim for in that TED talk, which I'm glad you had some positive words to say, it was not certainly, some of the feedback I had was, was really quite disheartening. What I tried to offer in that TED talk was really this view that we need to rethink some things. I do believe that. But the most important thing we need to rethink is our relationship to purpose and its connection to work. And that's the biggest thing that I've rethought over the last 12 years. And I think some of that disheartening feedback might have come from a viewpoint that's quite common, especially on this side of the Atlantic, where people believe that if other people are not constrained or required to work in order to survive, then they will become morally dissolute. Somehow this doesn't apply to those people who are making that judgment. So they are opposed to anything like universal basic income or something which would remove the necessity to survive. And yet, I think we're looking at the decoupling of, for instance, purpose and survival as we go on, because I'm really putting a lot of things together here, but when you talk about utopia, when we envisage a utopia and what might be brought about as a result of the technological cornucopia, we envisage that being fair to everyone. But if it continues the way it does now, that capital will simply slide further and further towards the people that hold the most of it right now, and the cornucopia will be one-sided. And it's this inequity that fuels the mobs with the pitchforks. If everyone is equally badly off, they don't form a mob. They get together, they help each other. It's when they feel that other people are taking advantage of them to get a lead that they start getting upset. And of course, this goes back to all kinds of revolutions, but where it seems acute now is in the threat of automation causing the increased unemployment, as you say, that results in capital as a result of that automation flowing to people who already have quite enough of it. And assuming you agree, because I, th I think from what I've seen, I've really called this wrong if you don't, that it looked to me like you're trying from the viewpoint of like a geek, which you said you are as well, to solve the big problem. Like what's the point in solving the little problems when this big one is lurking around the corner as well? We've got to solve that. Yeah. Is that something that you feel like you want to get more of a handle on, get out there and get more people to get on board with? And, and here I am, by the way, just saying, those people that gave you the negative feedback, forget them. <laughs> You're right on target. Okay, so you've got a, got a fan here. Thank you. Well, that's good to hear. You've obviously had a longer experience of public speaking and being out there, putting points of view forward than I have. I guess for me, that TEDx was, you know, even though I'd blogged and done events before, it was the first time... I had articulated my thoughts in such a public way and such a permanent way. And I guess the problem with having an 18-minute video on YouTube is it does follow you around. And what I wasn't, and I guess this is what so many other people in the public eye have experienced, is I wasn't prepared for the trolling that came as a result of that. And so I guess what I felt, even to today, I feel most upset by is the fact that kind of put myself out there. I had drawn on an immensely personal experience of hardship 
And I had tried to think carefully about how do we offer a message of hope. The organizers of that event wanted me to talk about automation and jobs, but I wanted to make it a hopeful message and not a, a doom and gloom message. And I guess I wasn't prepared for being so deeply criticized for some of the ideas that I put forward. But you're absolutely right. I think I'm not at all suggesting I have an answer or will ever come to an answer or ever come to a solution. But I think, and I do mean this very genuinely in TEDx, that I see my goal is provoking conversation. I think that's something which I've always done and always enjoyed doing. And I guess this is where I see a huge parallel between my discipline, which I consider to be philosophy, and other disciplines which I got accused of dabbling in or meddling in or having something to say that I really should have had no place to talk about, which is politics and economics. And for me, what's fascinating about all of these topics, whether it's philosophy or economics or politics or data science, is that we're all trying, using different words and using slightly different methods, we're all trying to build models for how the world is and models for how we want the world to be and then strategies to nudge us from here to there. And I guess, you know, maybe that's the sort of thought I would leave people with. And that's, you know, we all talk in slightly different terms, whether we think of from economics terms or from theological terms or political terms. But I think that's really the exercise we're trying to work through together. We just want to design the world that we want to have. And we just do it in mm. different ways. Well, there is a community of distinguished thoughtful people that hold the same views as you, that it is important to raise these questions, even if we don't have the answers yet, and that you're in good company with people that feel the same way. And there are always trolls, but that gives you a clue that you're raising an issue that needs to be raised. So we could perhaps do a better job in the community of unifying ourselves and lending mutual support, but know that those people are there. And the fact that you show up on this side as well is just an indication of how this has arrived at a time that it needs to be raised. And speaking of time, we're out of it. So Charles, can you tell our listeners how they can find out about you, see your TED Talk, see other things that you've done, read about you and follow you to whatever extent you would like to be followed? So I guess this is probably a conversation for another day. I've decoupled myself from so many channels right now. So, you know, you can find me on Twitter, but it's very unlikely I'll ever see the message. The best way to reach me is either via my website, which is datafilosopher.com, um, or through my company, which is ethicsgrade.io, or on LinkedIn, which if you get the very archaic spelling of my name, you'll probably find me. <laughs> Charles Radcliffe, thanks for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you, Peter. That's the end of the interview. So what do you think? Should we have certifications for AI engineers? Certainly there are all kinds of problems inherent in any kind of certification and delineating just what is AI and what isn't is very hard. But if we could wave a magic wand and solve those problems, do you think we should do it anyway? Charles shows how so many people are now thinking about talking about and doing something about the issues we raise in this podcast and which were in my book, Crisis of Control. It's starting to feel like a movement building around the world. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, Guangzhou, China-based WeRide, 
received approval from the California Department of Motor Vehicles to test driverless vehicles on public roads in San Jose, two and a half months after Baidu was granted a permit to do the same. They have been testing autonomous vehicles with safety drivers since 2017. The company will run trials without that precaution, using two cars confined to designated streets, according to the DMV. The cars will operate on roads with speed limits up to 45 miles per hour, but not during heavy rain or foggy conditions. All this progress in autonomous vehicle deployment is going to make an interesting background for an interview I have coming up in a few episodes with the director of the Victoria Transport Policy Institute when he tells us how realistic fully autonomous vehicles really are. Next week, I'll be talking with Kakia Chachu, a PhD researcher in computational linguistics who uses AI to analyze political discourse, things said by and about politicians, to extract meaning. Will she find any? We'll learn that next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.